This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Hello, good to have you along this afternoon. Picking up on that major trade news which came through during yesterday's Country Hour, the state's largest grain handler, the CBH Group, is permitted once again to export barley to China. Of course, it was over the weekend that China removed tariffs of more than 80% on Australian-grown barley, but two exporters, including CBH, were still suspended from the trade. Until yesterday. How do you react to that news? 0448 922 604 is the SMS if you'd like to get in touch today. You'll check in with the Bureau of Meteorology today. That's coming up after an update from the newsroom at 12.30 off to Mount Barker for results of the cattle sale before one o'clock. And very shortly, you'll meet 82-year-old Laurie Snell, who has cared for poultry including turkeys, nearly all her life. They're pets, every one of those pets. We have eaten one, but I wouldn't do it again. (laughs) That's Laurie. She's just been awarded life membership of the Waruna Poultry Club, and you'll meet her before one o'clock. Again, I would love to hear from you today. Get in touch on the usual number, 0448-922-604. Seven past 12 and kicking off today with news that Malaysia has temporarily suspended all imports of Australian cattle and buffalo because of concerns around lumpy skin disease. This, of course, follows Indonesia's decision to suspend cattle imports from four Australian export facilities after it found 13 Aussie cattle with LSD. That's including uh, from one export facility in the East Kimberley. Australia's chief vet, Mark Ship, maintains Australia does not have this disease and says he's asked his Malaysian counterpart to lift this suspension without delay. Will Evans is the CEO of the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association. He says the industry is working to rebuild confidence with its trading partners. So last Friday, the Australian government was notified that Malaysia had temporarily suspended uh, live exports from Australia. This is based on concerns around our LSD status that have been expressed by Indonesia. What we're doing at the moment is we're working through a process of re-emphasising our LSD-free status with Malaysia and Indonesia. But this is a question from a trading partner. So what we're doing is we're saying, okay, what do you guys need to satisfy your concerns and how do we meet those, those concerns? So it's very similar to the process we've been going through with Indonesia. It's just about rebuilding that confidence in the systems that we have in place that we're very confident of and showing this to our trading partners to make sure that they've got the same level of confidence. Now you mentioned there that the government was notified last Friday. Why has it only become official overnight? Well, we've been working through a process around understanding the decision that has been made. Uh, it's, it's, it's not very straightforward, these things. Sometimes it's quite complex. So we've been understanding the indicators and, the, and what exactly the requirements are. But it, it's something that's progressed over the week and it's something that's still moving. This is all very fast-moving situation at the moment um, and it's something that we, we're working on being very responsive to. But, yeah, it's always, it's always difficult when it's at this level. Will, Malaysia has gone a step further here than Indonesia because it has suspended all live cattle and buffalo exports. How concerning is that? Well, obviously this is a significant step. 
But again, it's the importance of reiterating our LSD-free status to the industry here and also to our trading partners is critical. We're very comfortable with the systems that we have in place. We want to communicate these with our trading partners and we feel very strongly that when we do make that case that obviously this is something that they will uh, be understanding of. Dr Mark Ship, the Chief Vet of Australia, he says he's asked his Malaysian counterpart to lift this suspension without delay. Is there anything else that you'd like to see the federal government do here? Oh, look, we're, we're very supportive of the processes that we're going through. I mean, obviously, as industry, we, we want to see a resolution of this as quickly as possible. But we're sensitive to the, the work that the Australian government is doing. This is, this is obviously diplomacy at a very high level, and this is a biosecurity request, so we've got to get the scientists involved, and they've got to talk to each other and explain their systems to each other. So there's a lot of complexities in this, Matt. We want to see a resolution as, as soon as possible, but our job in this situation is to be supporting the Australian government, supporting the Northern Territory government, and making sure that they have the information that they need from industry to reopen this trade as soon as possible. Uh, I've got here that there's four ships due out of Darwin Port in the next seven days. Were any of them due to go to Malaysia? I, I believe that there's been some consignments to Malaysia that have been prepared or were in the process of being prepared. I'm not sure of the status of those currently. We're, again, we're working through that process now. And what we, again, it's, it, what the, the important thing here is that we're communicating with our trading partners and we're re-establishing the trade as soon as possible. Okay. But there's, there's potentially cattle that were due to go on a boat later in the week to Malaysia. And right uh, now they yeah. can't do that. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't comment on the specifics of it, mate. It's a question for the exporters. Um, but uh, uh, like I said, as I'm aware, there are cattle in the Territory and there are cattle all across northern Australia that are due to be exported to Malaysia this year. And we're very optimistic about seeing that happen. Is there anyone out there buying cattle for live export ships right now? I, I, I believe so. I mean, we've obviously seen movement in the trade this week. It's important to reiterate that the trade with Indonesia is still open um, and we, we've still been seeing ships depart and, and go overseas to our trading partners. And Will Evans, I've got here that Malaysia itself has had lumpy skin disease since 2021. Can you explain to our audience why it's getting concerned about a disease it has? I wouldn't be able to comment on it, Matt. I'm sorry. It, it, it would be a question for the Malaysian government. Obviously, anybody purchasing a product wants to make sure the product is of the highest standard. So, I mean, it could be something to do with that. But again, this is a, a question that best plays for the, the Malaysians. Okay. And just finally, any timelines that you're aware of, of this being resolved? No, look, at the moment, it's, 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 it's open-ended. We are working through it as quickly as possible. But it's important that we're not impeding the actions of the government and we're supporting them as much as possible and we're supporting our trading partners as much as possible. Will Evans is the CEO of the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association, speaking with Matt Bran. Compared to Indonesia, Malaysia is one of Australia's smaller live export markets. A yearly average of nearly 20,000 head have been exported there over the past five years. From WA, just under 1,500 head of cattle were shipped. Um, that's from Broome to Malaysia last year. In 2021, it was about 10,000. Um, and I will add as well, there are between 10 and 20,000 sheep and goats which head to Malaysia from WA, from Perth and Fremantle, every year. But this import suspension is only related to cattle and buffalo, so it shouldn't impact those 
goats and sheep heading to Malaysia. Um, Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt says Australia's biosecurity officials are working as quickly as possible to assure both Indonesia and Malaysia of Australia's disease-free status. The testing results uh, are starting to come in uh, and there is nothing that we have seen so far to alter uh, our position that Australia is free of lumpy skin disease. But our, our biosecurity officials are urgently working with both Malaysia and Indonesia uh, to to meet their requirements to demonstrate conclusively that we don't have lumpy skin disease and we hope to see that trade reopen as quickly as possible. Um, We always have have firmly believed that this is simply a biosecurity issue. It's not a political issue or a trade issue. Uh, From time to time we do see suspensions of the exports of certain products from Australia because of a range of reasons. We've obviously started uh, removing those sorts of suspensions from China. Uh, So these things do happen. We've just got to get on with the job uh, and meet these requirements and get that trade moving as quickly as possible. That's Agriculture Minister Murray Watt speaking at Parliament House this morning. Meanwhile, Nationals leader David Littleproud says the federal government needs to start showing some better leadership. Malaysia has taken what would look like a knee-jerk reaction to this uh, without all the facts and without having the proper dialogue. Uh, It's important that the Minister and the Prime Minister make sure that our trading partners continue to have confidence in, in us as one of the the cleanest and greenest producers of uh, meat in the world. So we're just saying we need calm, but we also need leadership. And that leadership needs to come from the Minister and the Prime Minister, making sure not just Malaysia, but our other trading partners, particularly like Vietnam, have confidence uh, in our systems that are world-leading. So I think think we just need to take a deep breath, but this is where we need calm, but we need that leadership for the Prime Minister and the Minister to take hold. Can you really blame the government for the decisions of a foreign government in taking what you described there as a knee-jerk reaction? Well, it will depend on whether they've, they've had dialogue with uh, those governments. Uh, it's important to understand that your international reputation is one that gives you currency in trading and, and is securing premiums for our producers. So it's important that you protect that. And when there is uh, a scientific dispute about uh, where lumpy skin, in fact, uh, was prevalent in those cattle that went to Indonesia, you need to make sure that not just Indonesia gets comfort, but also our other trading partners. And that's about having that dialogue at a government-to-government level with ministers uh, in particular, and if required, then from a prime minister. But uh, I think that science was there, and it was obvious that we could demonstrate that. I just don't think that the minister bothered to pick the phone up to make sure our other trading partners had the confidence uh, that we have and that we hope will be able to instill in the Indonesians. That's Nationals leader David Littleproud addressing the media early today, just reacting to that news. Malaysia has temporarily suspended all imports of cattle and buffalo from Australia. That's following on from the decision by Indonesia to suspend imports from four facilities in northern Australia with those question marks around lumpy skin disease. And again, Australian authorities have repeated Australia remains free of lumpy skin disease. It's essentially now trying to work to reassure Indonesia and Malaysia that that is the case. There'll be more of this story on The World Today after one o'clock this afternoon. And I'm keen for your thoughts on Malaysia taking this action. 0448 922 604 is the SMS. What are your thoughts on Malaysia taking this action to suspend imports of Australian cattle and buffalo? Do you think Australia could have handled this better? 
should the minister have done, as David Littleproud suggested and picked up the phone, phoned all the countries we export cattle to. What are your thoughts on this? 0448 922604. And in the meantime, you can read more of this story online. Just search ABC Rural Lumpy Skin. The WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. We'll continue that talk of trade for a moment because if you tuned into the end of yesterday's program, you'll have heard the news that Australian grain exporters CBH and Emerald can now resume trading barley to China. On Saturday, China removed tariffs of more than 80% on Australian-grown barley, but up until yesterday, CBH and Emerald remained suspended from the trade due to what China has been calling phytosanitary concerns. In Senate question time yesterday, Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt broke that news that China has lifted its trade suspension on the two big grain exporters. Pat O'Shaughnessy is the CEO of Grain Trade Australia, which helps facilitate commercial activities across the grain supply chain, and he welcomes the news. I think it's great news for obviously those two companies, but for everybody else, it sort of lays the um, paddock there, if you like, to sort of say that it looks like that the politics for the time being has been removed from the trade. Is it a surprise to you? Did you just think this would naturally flow once those tariffs were removed, that this suspension for these two Bali exporters would be removed also? Very hard to be complacent, I guess, but we were aware that these discussions had been going on between the two governments to try and remove this ban. So I think it's good news. But why was there the two stages in the process, do you think, between the lifting of the tariffs to the lifting of this suspension on these two companies? It's really to do with the complexity, I think, of the Chinese system. In one hand, the tariffs are being managed by one area of the Chinese government and this um, phytosanitary issue was also being managed by separate areas. So there's really two negotiations that were going on. All right. You weren't concerned at all that there would be a longer delay with this process? Well, I think with any of our markets, complacency would not be a great place to um, be. So you've always got to be on your toes with these things, whether it's China or whether it's any other markets, to be honest. And Pat, can you just take us back to, you know, all those years ago when this suspension was put on CBH grain and emerald grain, that phytosanitary concern that was raised by China? What was the story there again? The issues have been around some phytosanitary issues that we have with China, around some weed seeds and snails in Bali. But those um, issues are, are really, let's call it practical day-to-day issues in the market that um, people deal with day in, day out. And I think the ban there was um, clearly when we were getting this politics and trade being mixed together, which um, obviously is not good for, for the trade. So was it a, a genuine problem with the shipment, those phytosanitary concerns, or it was just merely caught up in the whole trade dispute between the two countries? You're really testing the memory there. I, I, I think it was really about this, the issue at the time, which is more the political issue. But I think the, the thing at the moment now is to just look forward and say, well, that's all behind us now and hopefully we, we should be able to get all the trade happening back quickly for growers. That's true. I mean, you know, looking forward, this is a, an opportunity now to get Australian barley into the Chinese market again. But because of those concerns around the weed seed, the snails, etc., going back all those years. How careful does Australia need to be, or these two exporters in particular, need to be about that first shipment they deliver into China? 
Oh, look, like I said, with any market, you shouldn't be complacent. And so managing the phytosanitary issues for each shipment is something that exports should be doing all the time. So that should be really back to business as usual. Yeah. Will there be some hesitancy about going back into China because of those concerns <clears throat> all those years ago? I think it would be fair to say that people will be assessing their um, country risk, their China risk, a little bit differently than in the past. But the grain trade is an interesting business in that we've traded with many interesting parts of the world and China is just another one of those. So how how do you think this is going to unfold? Because obviously, you know, China was worth so much money um, to Bali, the Bali industry here in Australia. But in the meantime, there's been some real great opportunities open up in other places like Saudi Arabia and into the Mexican market too. How is this going to play out? I think it's just a, it's a really good thing in terms of allowing a, a market to be competitive and, and for the market to then work out how that grain gets distributed. That's often through price, but it's also through things such as counterparty risk, credit risk, and, and just simple logistics. So really, if we remove the political shackles from the market, then um, it's going to be in everyone's interest, the consumers and the producers, that the market becomes more efficient and more effective. There's been a lot of talk that, you know, it's really important to keep those other markets that have been developed or expanded over the last three or so years, like Saudi and, and Mexico as just two examples. But, I mean, isn't the fact is that whoever pays the, the highest price is going to get the Australian barley. So it could end up all going back to business as usual pre the tariffs that China imposed and all of it going into China basically or 70% of it, whatever. Yeah, I think the thing to remember is that we're part of a global market. So there's still Canadian barley, there's Argentinian barley, there's French barley that also has to find homes. And so it's all just about um, having a competitive market without politics being involved. And, and like I said, that's going to be for the benefit of our producers will be for the benefit of other producers and for the benefit of the consumers in those countries as well. Pat, did you ever think it would take this amount of time to sort this issue out, <clears throat> three years or so? Um, to be honest, yes. We, we did think that um, one of the, the um, positive moves, I think, of this negotiation between China and Australia in this area was that it has probably circumvented the full process that is um, available under the WTO. So... Hats off to both the Chinese government and the Australian government to um, negotiate a really positive outcome. Pat O'Shaughnessy, he's from Grain Trade Australia, was speaking with Belinda Varischetti. Unfortunately, no one from CBH was available yesterday or today to chat about that news that the cooperative can now resume barley exports to China. But you can get in touch today. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four is the SMS. I might be in Karatha, but that doesn't mean you can't send me a text. The number again, zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Heath has texted to say the fact is if the Ag Minister and the Prime Minister were from the country, they'd have bigger gonads and more common sense and the country would be run proper. Thanks, Heath. Do you agree? Is that the problem here, that they're not from the country? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Get in touch this afternoon. The WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. I'm going to continue talking about CBH because Western Australia's main grain handler has announced it's going to install new LED beacon lights on all current 
and future locomotives to improve train visibility. The new lights will sit on the headboard to enhance visibility of all CBH trains. Pastoralist Lara Jensen has welcomed this news. She's been lobbying for better lighting on trains ever since her brother Christian was killed at a level crossing in the Wheatbelt more than 20 years ago. We do welcome, obviously, any improvements to locomotive and rolling stock lighting. In this case, it's referring to the the LED lights, LED beacon lights. Unfortunately, I haven't seen a picture of them, them or I haven't actually seen what they look like on the train, so it's a little bit difficult to comment. But we, we would just like to think that it, we'd like to hope that it's a beacon in the traditional sense of the word. So the ones you see on escorts and, and you know, your semi-trailers and, and things like that. I mean, we we know that the flashing light's an accepted indicator of a hazard on our roads, um, so we would we welcome it, but we would just like to have a little bit more information, I suppose, as to what they actually look like. And providing that they're effective... Um, on close range to a passive level crossing. Yeah, that's the big thing from our perspective because obviously that's what our our loved ones didn't get in the accidents that that claimed their lives. So a a good step forward. We've had a number of reports and then two in more recent years which kind of keep saying the same thing, rotating beacons, outline lighting, brighter livery and a unique lighting signature. Are you hoping that CBH may go a little further? Absolutely. Well, we are we're saying improved visibility for wagons is also essential and it needs to be a matter of urgency as well. We know with rail crash statistics that 70% normally hit the front of the trains, but 30% will hit the side, so the rolling stock, wagons or containers. So it does, it, it is an issue and it, it does need really close attention. And we know that there is technology available. It's just a matter of applying it in a rail context. And this is the thing, Natasha, you know, safety lighting is not new mandatory safety lighting regulations they've been in place in all other hazardous high-risk industries for decades now and rail companies they operate businesses that interact with regional motorists so the least they can do is make their locos and rolling stock visible to rural road users at all times that's the big thing you know this is this is well overdue it's not before time i'm not taking anything away from cbh they did listen to us and and that's good but we've still got further to go we need to make these locos and rolling stock visible at all times You must take some heart from the fact that um, your lobbying has started to gain some traction in the social sphere. Uh, Political changes have been made. We've seen some funding to remove passive level crossings in Western Australia and, and, and see them upgraded. And now some industry support. Yeah, no, it is good, but it's been one hell of a slog. Um, We've met resistance at every turn from the rail industry, I've got to say. So that's been difficult because obviously there's there's nothing to be gained for our families. We just don't want to see these, you know, preventable tragedies happening to other families. And, And what I want to say is just our loved ones, their lives mattered. And so does a legacy of safety improvements to train and rolling stock lighting to honour their lives cut short. You know, we are talking about completely preventable tragedies. So I am heartened, but there's just countless hours behind the scenes here that we've all put in our families and, and you know, the wonderful independent road and rail safety researcher, Dr Brett Hughes, who come on board to help us. You know, there's there's so much, you know, that, that's involved with this lobbying and I'd do it all again. It, you know, it's just that it's... It's just a shame that the rail industry hasn't been more receptive more quickly. But never mind, we're getting there and we'll continue to plug away until we, you know, and, until we, we're seeing these oversized, overlength, you know, <laughs> um, trains lit up, you know, just, yeah, no different to the road transport industry.
That's pastoralist Lara Jensen speaking with Natasha Haradine. CBH says it will begin installing the panels from October and the first rollout is expected to take between 12 and 18 months. It's 29 past 12 on the country hour. Have you looked at your diesel bill lately? It's not been a pretty sight, I reckon. Just looking at diesel around the state today in Geraldton, it's up around $2 per litre. Esperance, $2.14. I fueled up between Carnarvon and Carrathy yesterday, around $2.50 a litre. Ouch. Unfortunately, a leading energy economist says you could be in for some more pain too when it comes to those prices. Vivek Dar is a mining and energy economist with Commonwealth Bank and he says it's supply cuts causing the spike. You know, we are seeing OPEC Plus, which is a group of, of oil producers um, led by Saudi Arabia and Russia. They account for about 40% of global supply and they are cutting supply quite aggressively to the point where they're almost inducing a shortage in the market. And that is what's driving prices higher. You know, talking about where oil, where oil prices have been, particularly, say, uh, the Brent Oil benchmark, you know, it was 70 to $75 a barrel just, you know, a couple of months ago. Now we're at 85 and and the risk is that we could be a little higher from here. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very tricky one to predict, but... This is a month-on-month policy decision from OPEC+, and that's why it's very critical to watch. But that, for me, is going to be the primary driver of not just oil prices, but diesel prices too. Okay, so that's an artificial or manufactured oil shortage. Yeah, in terms of how it how it's playing out, yeah, it's it's supply driven as opposed to just responding to market fundamentals. If everyone was producing supply in in the most competitive way, and you said a month by month prospect as in terms of what what decisions they make is there any way of predicting what those decisions may be so look the the one i guess framework to look at is what price of oil does saudi arabia want in order to balance their budgets their fiscal budgets that is and if you look at some of the analysis out there by say international monetary fund it's closer to around 80 dollars a barrel so it is possible that they start relaxing their level of aggression in supply cuts But we'll have to wait in the next few days, actually, when they make those decisions for September and their oil production targets. But it is, you know, for us, we're probably close to the level where they're okay with the price. I think it's it's between that 80 to 85 dollar barrel mark. But let's see in terms of how they act um, and what decisions they make in terms of how much price increases we could potentially see. It is very much going to be dependent on Saudi Arabia, I would say, in their supply policy. Vivek Dar, he's a mining and energy economist with the Commonwealth Bank and we're speaking with Angus Verley. 28 to 1 on the Country Hour. Let's get some news headlines with Tabarak al In the headlines, the WA Health Minister has continued to defend the decision not to consult doctors before opting to relocate a planned women's and babies hospital. Documents tabled in Parliament show the government decided to move the facility from the QE2 site in Netherlands about a month after receiving a report detailing issues with the location. Malaysia has suspended all live cattle and buffalo imports from Australia amid concerns about lumpy skin disease. The restrictions come almost two weeks after Indonesia halted live cattle imports from four 
four Australian facilities, including one in WA's Kimberley. Australia's chief veterinarian has asked for the ban to be lifted as the virus has never been detected in Australian cattle. And federal parliament has formally apologised to the victims of the unlawful robo-debt scheme and committed to ensuring such a program is never repeated. The government services minister Bill Shorten moved a motion from the House of Representatives to accept the findings of Royal Commission into robo-debt and express a deep regret to its victims. Coalition MPs voted against the motion. More news at one. Thank you for that, Tabara. I can just picking back up on that story about Malaysia temporarily suspending all imports of Australian cattle and buffalo because of those concerns around lumpy skin disease. Bob Ifler has been in touch on the SMS 0448922604. Bob says the Australian government should pay all the costs to get vets from the countries that have banned cattle from Australia to come and check it out. If there's no lumpy skin disease, then one would assume the ban would be lifted. Thanks for that, Bob. You can get in touch as well, 0448 Let's head to the Weather Bureau now. Caroline Crow is with you. Uh, let's kick off in the north today. Caroline, how are things looking up here? Yeah, good afternoon, Michelle. Uh, so in the north, we've got uh, dry, warm and sunny conditions. Uh, so sort of uh, typical dry season conditions through the Kimberley into the Pilbara and northern parts of the interior as you get into them and similar for the northern Gascoyne. As you get a little bit further south, we're starting to see some cloud over southern parts of the, the Gascoyne and into the gold fields. Um, and then we've got clear conditions at that point, at this point in time in the uh, Eucla. Uh, there is some uh, quite extensive cloud uh, to the west and southwest, uh, and we're getting some showers out of that, and that will move into the far southwestern parts of the Gascoyne and into the gold fields over the next couple of days. We could get some uh, lighter falls through the southwestern parts of the Gascoyne, but in the gold fields, uh, we could get see a bit more uh, showers and patchy rain. So over the next couple of days, uh, potentially uh, coming into Tomorrow we could see some areas of 5 to 10 millimetres with maybe the isolated falls to 15 mils and then similar coming into Saturday before it starts extending and contracting more into uh, southeastern parts of the state, so into the Eucla and then gradually it will clear. I reckon they'll be looking forward to some of that, 15 mils in some spots. Um, how about in the southwest land division? Yeah, so uh, that cloud band is the dominant feature. Plenty of cloud over uh, most parts of the southwest land division uh, at this point in time. And the, the showers and the patchy rain uh, extends from about Bunbury all the way up to Durian Bay and then in a southeast woods direction towards the south coast. So sort of north east of a line, say Bunbury to Mount Barker, and then sort of uh, southwest of around Durin Bay to Hyden at this point in time. We've seen sort of three to four millimetres uh, through the south of Perth and the Bunbury uh, area at this point. Um, and we will, over the next, uh, during today and tomorrow, we'll see that cloud band or the precipitation from it uh, move more in a northeasterly direction. So coming into uh, tomorrow, 
the band will sit a little bit further north and sort of a bit more north of Perth and sort of lie more Lancelin to Hyden around to Ravensthorpe. So, and so northeast of that line and about southeast of around Geraldton through around to uh, Kalgoorlie. Um, so today's rainfall, uh, looking around two to five millimetres uh, in parts uh, with, with the cloud band, might get the isolated seven to ten millimetres. Uh, that's more likely to be... Um, um, through around the um, into the Hyden area and Corrigan um, and sort of around York area. And then coming into tomorrow, uh, similar rainfall around five to ten millimetres uh, in some parts, and uh, the parts likely to get that are those eastern parts of the Southwest Land Division, so near Muckambudan and Southern Cross, a little bit further towards the northwest, our Wallanew and Inniaba area are looking more closer to sort of two to five millimetres. Um, and then we it starts uh, similar coming into Saturday. Uh, we do start seeing it contract a little bit from the west and lighter falls with the heavier falls confined to the far northeast of the southwest land division. So uh, five to ten millimetres around Muckambudan and Southern Cross and northeast of that area again, and then it gradually contracts out of the southwest land division coming into Sunday. Um, as that cloud band's moving northeast, we do have a weak front which is going to scrape the south coast coming into Friday and Saturday. So there will be hours maintained along the south coast uh, coming into uh, the next few days and into next week as well before the next cold front that moves through on Monday. And any warnings about today, Caroline? Uh, no warnings current at the moment, Michelle. Oh, very good. The Caroline Crow, thank you for that from the Bureau of Meteorology. And Richard Hudson is along with quite a bit of rainfall, I believe, Richard. Yeah, and also Mike is going to be very happy because I'm going to be consistent throughout the entire state. I'm only reading out those that are five mils and above, so consistent in every single location. Gidgigan up at eight. That's it. All right. <laughs> so no G- need to settle in. For some bizarre reason, Gidgigana, about 40 k's northeast of Perth, had a downpour of eight mils, and nowhere else in the entire state had more than one mil. And in the entire northern and eastern forecast districts, there was no rain at all. But um, as you heard, parts of the southwest have certainly received a fair amount of rain in the last few weeks, and... Farms in that Brunswick Junction area have certainly copped a lot of rain. So I'm talking just northeast of Bunbury. David Dopel is one of the co-custodians of Melville Park in Brunswick Junction. He's got a market garden and last Wednesday he tipped out a whopping 78 mils of water out of his rain gauge. I, yeah, I'm wearing my uh, fly fishing waders at the moment, so that they go up to my armpits. I haven't gone that deep into it, but the trouble is if you stand too long when you're picking something, then you're sucked in and getting yourself extracted is not easy. Yeah, well, we have a one-hectare market garden as well as uh, running some running cattle as well. We're, we're on the floodplain of the Brunswick River, so but we're elevated where the house is and the house dates to the 1880s and it's still here so it's never been flooded but uh, we've had the standing water and there are some lakes where uh, there were veggies and I was we were pulling out um, beetroot on the weekend and they were just going slurp slurp as they just sort of came out of this liquid mud. Uh, yeah. You even had to build a mud room from from this last sort of bit of wet, is that right? Well, it's been on the plan for a while because last winter we, we experienced it for the first 
time really. We'd only, we've only been in the property a couple of years and there were two things we didn't know about. One were the incredibly strong easterlies in the summer and the mud uh, this time of year, yeah, for sure. And so we, we've converted one of the rooms and added a new door so we don't have to be traipsing uh, all our wet gear and uh, muddy boots into the house. Is what you're picking coming out all right, though, with all this water and mud? Oh, look, the cauliflowers took a bit of a beating, but uh, most other things are still looking pretty good. Yeah, I mean, we need the rain and we want the rain. Uh, just don't like as much of it in such a short amount of time. They spread out a bit more. Yeah, we've got a bit of another up front coming through today. It's quite damp out there as well. Were you, were you hoping you might get some drainage or just if you put that to rest? Yeah, well, well, we, we have and... The last few days, of course, it's been beautiful and sunny and drying off, so we're out in the tractor yesterday getting as much done, uh, moving some dirt around and, and driving in the paddocks before the rain came again. Yeah, we learned our lesson in our first year here where I was out with one of our tractors um, and managed to bog it up to the axles. Then uh, we took our second tractor out to tow the first tractor out and then bog that one as well I've got a great photo of the two tractors up to their axles and had to call one of our neighbours um, who then had some friends come over to laugh at us while they were pulling them all out yeah your property is on the Brunswick River the the river's flowing quite ferociously at the moment yeah it's it's uh, at a clip and we, we went down of course the Thursday morning after the torrential rain just to see how high up the banks it was and it was uh, amazing yeah or inspiring, actually. You wouldn't want to fall in. You'd, you'd find yourself in the Indian Ocean pretty quick. You have actually done some research, though, and sort of found some figures, and, and we're not really anywhere near what rainfall used to be in this area, despite how wet it is. Is that right? Yeah, so we're still off by a couple hundred mils year to date. So we think it's really wet, but in fact the, the year is not a wet year at all. But interestingly, in '64. Uh, was the wettest day on record in one 24-hour period in Brunswick, and it was 82 mils. And we had 78 in 24 hours this last week. So that's pretty close to record setting. And some of our neighbours who came into our farm shop on the weekend, and, of course, everyone was talking about the weather, uh, some of them recorded closer to over 90. Uh, so that's, that's, a, that's a lot of rain. That's David Dopel. He farms in Brunswick Junction and has been scooping vegetables out of the mud this past week. Beetroot, chilies, capsicum, cabbage, broccoli, silver beet, peas, carrots, potatoes and asparagus on raised beds. He also runs some cattle on a small block and it sounds like it's dinner at his house. Uh, but farmers in parts of the eastern states would love to be getting their tractors bogged at the moment. Unfortunately though, many are in for some really tough times because they've hardly had any rain this winter. Drought-weary farmers in Victoria's East Gippsland are already thinking about cutting back cattle numbers. Chris Nixon runs beef and dairy cattle on his property in August and he's going to start by selling 10% of his herd and adjust as the season progresses. The variable weather of East Gippsland continues to amaze us all. We have gone from, you know, probably a couple of driest weather you know, years on record to a couple of the wettest years on record to now it's uh, now getting very dry again. We've only had 12 mils of rain the last two months, June and July. Pasture growth is, we're, yeah, we're green and it's 
sort of kicking over with the cool cool weather and the short days and the uh, dews, the odd little bit of a shower that we get, but uh, it's nothing that we could hang a hat on going forward into spring. What impact is that having on how you're managing your farm going forwards? We're, totally, we're fully restocked after the drought years. I think um, it would be prudent for us to now consider some level of destocking as spring works its way through. We we need to be very wet at the end of August to have a very good spring. You, know, you get the winds and the, the solstice change, the, the solstice winds as we like to call them in September and early October and stuff. And our country's too dry. We are, we're we're kicking up dust as we drive across paddocks now, even though we're we're green. Um, yeah, we need to start thinking about unloading some stock. It's you know it's too expensive to buy in much hay to take them any distance. So uh, yeah, we'll be we'll be thinking about seriously destocking some cattle. Is that a difficult decision for you to make? No, no, not really. Um, a long time ago, I fed through a drought, and I'm never going to do that again. So uh, we destocked in the last drought and uh, bounced back pretty quickly. So I'll destock again this time. Have you heard of others in the Orbost region who are thinking about doing the same? Yeah, you know, everyone's sort of looking to the sky, and you know, and as you know, the bomb forecast. You know, we can't even drag a decent share of rain at the moment, so uh, it's only early days. But you know, you, you need to, you know, you need to be proactive. You don't want to get to the sort of middle of spring and say, "Oh, shit, I'm out of feed." <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so you just do need to um, start thinking about what what are you going to do if it if it stays dry. So we need to see rain happening by the end of August, or you'd be better off to uh, sell a few head. And you know, if it does rain, well, we can always make a few bales of silage or, or something to uh, tide us over for, for for next year. So there's no problem in destocking in that regard. You know, we've always got options of what we can do going forward. How long have you been farming in Orbost? Now about 30 odd years. I came home back in 1985. And how does this July compare, or this June and July, how do they compare with your experience over those three decades? Well, I mean, we can still get wet, um, but the reality is that, that, you know, it looks very similar to the the drought years that we had, you know, four or five years ago. Uh, We haven't had a lot of rain. There's no subsoil moisture. Dams are starting to empty out. And um, it's a discussion people are having probably from east of sale, to be quite honest, that that, uh, it is dry and we're all looking to the skies for a bit of relief. And we just hope... We hope that we don't have to start destocking, but you're better off planning for it now than what than waiting to you know to be in the thick of it and say now cross now what do I do? That's uh, that's my experience and uh, it's served me well in the past, but it was a very expensive lesson to learn and I I, I really don't want to go through that again. Orbost beef and dairy producer Chris Nixon speaking with Fiona Broom. And East Gippsland certainly isn't the only place in the east struggling with drought at the moment. Tomorrow you'll hear from a farmer and wool grower in northwest New South Wales who, like almost everyone in that region, decided not to plant a crop at all this year. Just too risky really uh, to do that. Some people have, have had a go and I think there's been some mixed results, but most people are spraying out what results they have achieved. So it's it's just been uh, too dry to, to really get a, a good start on. You'll hear the full story on the Country Hour tomorrow. You're with Michelle Stanley. 
for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. 13 to 1. I'd like to introduce you to Laurie Snell now. If you live in the southwest and you're into poultry, you probably already know Laurie. The 82-year-old was recently awarded life membership of the Waruna Poultry Club and she's also a member of the Harvey Poultry Club. Laurie Snell has been caring for turkeys, chooks and ducks most of her life. They're an interesting animal. Everyone has a different character. And uh, they're intelligent and they know you. That's what I enjoy about them. And I just call them and they'll come up and they'll talk to me. They'll gobble away at me and, uh, yeah. Take us to when you started your interest in poultry. Uh, as a child, I had uh, three Rhode Island red hens. And um, they were very much a part of my life and were, were pets. And um, I was very sorry to see them go to fricassee chicken when they finished laying eggs. Through my life, I've, university days, I, I studied egg science, but I always took poultry science courses as well in California, where I was born and raised. Yeah, when I got out here and married, I've always had uh, chickens and, and geese, which I don't have now. And now I have ducks and also turkeys. And the turkeys I have as a... a they're pets, every one of those pets. We have eaten one, but I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> so on your farm here, what have you got? How I can see a bunch of chickens over there. Mm-hmm. And how many of everything? <laughs> Take us through the list. I, I don't have a lot. I have about uh, eight to ten ducks. I just added uh, some muscovies. Um, I've got nine turkeys. That's five males and four females. And uh, chickens, well, I've, I've got a, a dozen hens and a few roosters, but one hen brought out a hidden nest of 16 babies, and they're just about ready to uh, you know, go off on their own. So there you are. That's the toll yeah. at the moment. Why, why do turkeys make good pets? What do you love about them? You've said they come up when you call them. They seem very friendly, I guess. <laughs> Uh, they are friendly. It's nice to just have them around. They're beautiful to look at. Uh, they always fan those tails out, the males, and they, they do look look uh, wonderful. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I did try some of the very rare breeds, um, but I've just settled for the normal uh, bronze and red and slate. That's Those are the three colors I have. Doing some rough maths, it must be about 70 years of keeping poultry or having poultry in your life? Uh, yes, at least. <laughs> what, what's, your, what's your advice, you know, uh, uh, what, what keeps you doing it and, and keeping them? I think uh, it keeps you mentally and physically stimulated. Uh, I can still swing a 20-kilo bag of chicken feed and I'm 82, so there, there you are. Uh, it's a good, healthy outdoor hobby. Uh, showing is fun. And you can see how your birds stack up against others. Uh, But I really just do it because I enjoy poultry. Southwest poultry enthusiast Laurie Snell chatting with Ellie Honeybone about her beloved birds. The 82-year-old was recently awarded life membership of the Waruna Poultry Club. It is 9 to 1 on the Country Hour. Deep herd researchers are excited. They now have access to a brand new glass house in Albany.
on WA's south coast. It's the only one outside Perth. Svetlana Micic is an entomologist with the department and says the glasshouse will allow them to conduct trials all year round in a controlled environment. So this is absolutely fantastic. One of the great things about this glasshouse that we have in Albany is the fact that it's temperature controlled, which means we can run trials all year round. Up until recently, we could only run pot trials in the glasshouse uh, just during winter because summer it was just too hot and you couldn't get the right temperatures to stop plants from flowering too early. Yeah, so are there any other advantages to this glasshouse? Absolutely. What it does mean is research doesn't just stop during the growing season. It means we can carry on research throughout the year. And the value to farmers is that it's all these little small pot trials that then can lead to on-farm benefits. What you might not realise is that the department and all the researchers tend to do small pot trials first before we do really large-scale field trials. And it a discrete small pot trial give you an idea of what the results will be before you put in a lot of effort and money to run really large scale field trials because field trials cost a lot more than a little pot trials do. Yeah, so what sort of work are you hoping to do or achieve with the glasshouse? So at the moment, we have a number of trials that are being done in the glasshouse. So we've got the nutrient group running a phosphorus trial. So they've got different applications of lime and they're looking at the leaching of phosphorus through the soil profile, which is quite exciting. And they'll be able to run these trials all year round, which is something they haven't been able to do before because now that we've got temperature control, we can keep plants growing all year round. And you can also modify the watering regimes so you can check how much water everything's going and the water that's coming into the glasshouse is pure so that means it's got no added uh, nutrients or calcium or anything like that so that means that when you're running fertilizer trials you can add what you need. Svetlana Mitchich is an entomologist with Deeperd. She was speaking with Sophie Johnson. Her team has a snail project inside that new glasshouse at Albany on WA's south coast. It's looking at how many eggs snails lay when in large densities compared to those in less dense populations. Six to one, heading to Mount Barker for the results of today's cattle sale very shortly. But if you've been at any of the state's livestock sales or just generally keeping an eye on the markets of late, you'll know numbers have been pretty slim. At Katanning's sheep sale yesterday, less than 2,500 head were on offer. And that compares with about... 8,000 or so Ross Waddell would typically expect to see this time of year. He's a buyer for two processes and was at yesterday's sale. Ross Waddell says the meatworks are running at capacity and he doesn't expect prices to turn around anytime soon. There's just an oversupply of product and uh, we've got to try and shift it at the moment. And uh, of course the downturn in the market makes it even worse with more sheep available now. For West Coast Meats and the other people that you buy for, are their chillers all full at the moment? We deal in local trade only, so we, we push it straight out as quick as we can. Um, yeah, we're we, we full production at the moment, try, trying to uh, you know, clear a bit of the backlog. These prices that we're seeing at the moment and the numbers uh, coming through, is this what, we can, what farmers can expect to see for the next couple of weeks? 
yeah, I don't think there'll be any change in the market for yeah, probably a couple of months, I would think, you know, the lower prices sort of thing. But, uh, you know, a great contributor to that was that the, you know, the land products got so so dear that, you know, this housewife went away from them for cheaper cuts, whether it be chicken or pork or that sort of thing, so... And so looking to the future, I guess maybe look 12 months, six months down the track, what are your projections for the price? Is it going to get any better, do you think? I think quality sheep will still sell well, you know. Store sheep are the ones that have probably taken the biggest biggest drop uh, per head, but you, you better, better lambs are still making up around the $120, your better mutton still making up around the $85. So, you know, at the end of the day is that the better sheep will continue to sell at a reasonably strong market, yeah. Now, the number today was, what, less than 2,500. When usually, what, what do you usually expect to see here at this time of year? This time of year, you'd have to check the records, but it'd be somewhere around the 8,000, I'd say. 8 or 10,000 they yard here yeah, this time of year. So it's a significant downturn? Oh, it's a downturn for sure, yeah. But you wouldn't want to see an 8,000 yarding here at the moment because it just none of the producers can handle them. You know the, that volume. You know we've we've got you know livestock on contract, livestock in the paddocks ourselves, which you know we we prefer not to do. You know we'd prefer to go straight from the sale yards to the abattoirs, but uh, you know just to the volume that's around at the moment, we you know we're paddock and feeding sheep as well. You know to try and just sustain in the sale yards. Yeah. So new season lambs are going to be coming on shortly. What do you see happening when that happens? Well, there's two nice pens here today. The first two pens that I've seen down here, well, I think they made 105 the tops and um, 85 for the second sort of thing. So, I would I would think they're still going to re- make around the hundred odd dollars plus. You know, the better types, the better better new seasons. So, at the end of the day, it's either going to be top notch or you're not going to get much for it. Yeah, I mean, it's always you know tradition. Tradition really in the sheep market is the, the fellow that produced the best articles was wasn't probably getting the premium, but at the moment they are. They're too, on, a, on, a, on a flat sale, if you, they've got a good article, they'll get the top of the money that's available. Ross Waddell, he's a buyer for West Coast Meat Solutions and the meat machine of Maddington. And we're speaking with Sophie Johnson at the Katanning Sale Yards yesterday. Off to Mount Barker for results from the cattle sale very shortly. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Hawaii fires, some people forced into the ocean as strong winds from a hurricane fanned deadly wildfires on the Hawaiian island of Maui. Lumpy skin disease, Malaysia suspends imports of all live cattle and buffalo from Australia. What does it mean for the industry? And farewell to the sugar man. Fans pay tribute to musician Rodriguez, who has died at the age of 81. Those stories coming up on The World Today. It's two to one, and maybe unsurprisingly after the last story, it was only a small yarding of cattle at Mount Barker today. Tracy Kiln has been there all morning. Hi, Tracy. Can you run through the details, please? Numbers were down for a small yarding of only 266 mixed quality cattle with road closures due to flooding hindering transport of stock to the yards. Young cattle dominated the yarding with heavy yearling steers selling to 348 cents while the same weight yearling heifers reached 278 cents a kilo. Cows and bulls eased 20 cents with heavy cows selling to 208 cents and heavy bulls made up to 188 cents a kilo. Heavyweight yielding steers sold from 208 to 348 cents and the lighter weights made from 200 to 300 cents. 
yearling heifers fluctuated with quality, selling for 200 to 278 cents for the heavyweights, and the lighter weights made 186 to 262 cents a kilo. Grown steers weighing 500 to 600 kilos returned 208 to 254 cents, and the heifers gained, selling for 210 to 240 cents a kilo. Heavy cows made from 174 to 208 cents, medium weight cows 152 to 168 cents, and store cows returned 50 cents to 168 cents a kilo. Heavy bulls sold from 120 to 188 cents. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you very much, Tracy. A few texts to get through before we hit the news from Fiona. We were just talking about those sheep numbers and the backlog with processors. Fiona says, with that sheep backlog, we need to keep the live trade going. And John, uh, touching on the fuel price, John says, when the oil price was $85, fuel used to be around the $1 per litre mark. Now oil is getting close to $85 again, but fuel prices are in excess of $2 per litre. And doesn't it pinch, John? Thanks for getting in touch. I'll catch you tomorrow. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.